from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. Today, my guest is Corin Shadmi, an award-winning writer and artist who has provided cover illustrations for Newsweek, LA Weekly, The Village Voice, and other magazines and newspapers. He studied and now teaches at the Visual School of Arts in New York City. As a teacher, is Corin able to tell which of his students have the best chance at making a living as an artist? What skills do they need to develop to survive in the business world? Corin joins me to talk about two graphic novels being released in October. The first, The Twilight Man, Rod Serling and the Birth of Television, being published by Humanoids. This 168-page black-and-white graphic novel will be available again in print this October. I asked Corin about the life of Rod Serling, the success he achieved in television and the struggles he faced. What makes The Twilight Zone a timeless classic? Corin's other work coming this October is Bionic, a full-color, 192-page graphic novel being published by Top Shelf IDW. What is it? Bionic is a near-future coming-of-age story for the digital generation. Victor is a geek who wants to win the love of the gorgeous Patricia. But she returns from a horrible accident with new robotic parts and both their lives are changed forever. As our discussion comes to a close, I kick back with the creator to ask Corin about his favorite birthday, beverage of choice, that missed opportunity, and more. So please, join me in welcoming my guest, Corin Shadme, the writer and artist of The Twilight Man, Rod Serling, and The Birth of Television, and Bionic. Here now, on Creator Talks. Corin, welcome to Creator Talks. Glad to be here. I'm honored to have you here. You have so many awards for your work, internationally too. Which one surprised you the most? The funniest one was, I guess, in Germany, I got an award for Best Erotic Graphic Novel, and I did not expect that because I didn't think that autobiographical comic called Love Addict, I really didn't see it as uh, that, you know, department, but I guess that's what it won. And, you know, when you win an award, you don't really argue with it. So that was the goofiest one, I guess. You won one from Shakespeare and Company. What is that? That was a long time ago. I was still at the School of Visual Arts, and I was basically working in senior year with a couple of my friends who were also cartoonists. And we won that scholarship to basically self-publish a collection of comics, which is uh, not really, I don't think it's available anymore. It was called uh, Critical Citadel. That award was from uh, Shakespeare and Company, which was, I think at the time, a bookstore that was close by to the School of Visual Arts. And as you mentioned, that's where you went to school, School of Visual Arts in New York City. And you are teaching there. I teach in the illustration department, um, and I just teach illustration. And we kept going via Zoom after everything kind of shut down here in New York. Um, so I was already like towards the end of the semester, and all my students had their big project in the third year. They have a big project that ends up being shown in the School Visual Arts Gallery in Chelsea. So uh, they were all bummed out that that didn't happen because they worked pretty hard on on their project. And then, of course, everything was canceled and they switched their show to a virtual show, which is just not the same. What have you learned about yourself 
as a teacher? It's hard. Teaching is very hard. It's interesting to be on the other side because, you know, when I went to SVA, I was the student. Now I'm the teacher. And I feel like it's a lot more demanding than you would think because it's almost like having for three hours a week, you have 20 kids. You've given birth to 20 kids and they all need something from you and they all want something. And you have to kind of give them a little bit of your attention and so by the end of it, I sometimes feel very uh, tired, but also it's very um, rewarding because I feel like I can really help them in things that for me might seem elementary, like why is this composition not working? Why is the storytelling in this illustration not working? You know, little things that for me are, you know, I've kind of tackled them and, and know how to deal with them. And for them, they're kind of only starting with certain things to deal with. So I think that in that department, it's nice to feel like you have something to give and you know more than the students and you're able to kind of share with them and help them kind of overcome certain obstacles that in illustration drawing, they're sometimes pretty abstract. They're not like solving a math problem. I'm curious to know what have the students taught you? Because usually it's a two-way street that they always give something back to the teacher. What have they taught you? They do teach me. Um, a lot of times they keep me up to date with technology. And I, I you know, don't want to be like that old geezer that doesn't <laughs> know how to, to work the computer. But, you know, they're all working with Procreate and iPads and they're all using it. And it seems pretty intuitive. So it kind of made me make the leap and try it out. And it's been really fun and great. And, and a lot of times they know little tricks and little, you know, brush certain brushes or every once in a while they know some sort of trick on the iPad or on, you know, one of the programs that I didn't really know. There's certain programs that they work on that I don't even, I've never really tried, like uh, Clip Studio that a lot of cartoonists use. But yeah, a lot of it is technological and and sometimes they're also, you know, just more abstract things where you might say something to the class that you don't even realize that you're thinking that way. Or you might have kind of like this realization that only comes out through talking to students that wouldn't come out when you're just sitting in front of your drawing table and drawing. So um, a lot comes out of that dialogue between um, me and the students. You've taught for a while. So can you tell who in your class will be successful just by observing them in class, seeing their work? Do you have a feel for that now? Yeah, I mean, it's really tricky. You never know to become a successful illustrator or cartoonist. Uh, you don't just need to be talented or be able to draw. You also need that business sense a little bit and that passion and self-drive that I think a lot of times I have students that are very uh, talented but I wonder, you know, will they be able to dive into the real world and succeed there? Because it requires a whole different set of skills, like being able to deal with rejection, being able to self-promote, being able to talk about your work in a coherent way. So I never know. I mean, I can tell who has better chances just from seeing their work, but you really never know. And you mentioned technology, too. Is that even more important today? You don't want to become a dinosaur. And things change so fast with technology. It is so hard to keep up. Is that really another key component besides having that business sense and being able to present your work properly and well 
Is that also key for students today to keep up with that technology? Yeah, I think it's pretty important. But at the same time, there's also a movement for special illustration where people are kind of going back to natural mediums like mm. watercolor and paint. So I wouldn't really necessarily say so always, but I would say that for cartoonists, it really helps because you have to produce work on a really big scale and really fast and technology really helps with that. But then again, there's the flip side that some people are saying, well, you're making all your work digitally. How are you going to sell it? How are you going to, you know, once you become famous enough, people are going to want to get your originals and you won't have one. So that's also kind of something that you need to think about. And I would say, though, that being aware of technology and knowing all the tools really, really does help navigate the current field of jobs that you would find. And speaking of jobs, some of the jobs that you have had, and I was really impressed by this too, you've done many cover illustrations for newspapers and magazines such as Newsweek, LA Weekly, Village Voice, really standout images with your style of art. Which one was your first breakout work for a newspaper or magazine? I think the first one was an illustration for the New York Times, their opinion section. They like to hire people right out of school or people maybe that are not well known because they need a lot of illustrations and they need them fast. So I did you know, an illustration for the New York Times and you know, sketches were due at 11 and then final was due at 5 p.m. And it was really quick. But I wouldn't say that it was what exposed my work to the world or whatever, but it did give me uh, the credential of saying, well, I've been in the New York Times. And then, you know, you put that on your website and then people can see that you've worked with a well-known publication and then that leads to more work. But I can't say that some people have that one illustration or one cover that just leads to a windfall of other jobs. And I can't say that it was like that for me. I think it was more like a trickle that kind of helped grow into like a steady stream of work. I want to talk about some of the work you've done more recently in the past couple of years. One of your graphic novels, The Twilight Man, Rod Serling and the Birth of Television. Let's talk about Rod and as science fiction writer and producer of The Twilight Zone, that series that ran between 1959 and 1964. And reading the book, I was really impressed with his determination. He wanted to serve in the military so badly that he kept trying and trying to get in against all odds because he wasn't a very big person and he was teased a lot. But what surprised me when I read your book was the division that he wanted to get into first in the military. You mean the paratrooper? Yes. I mean, of all things, <laughs> that takes a lot of nerve. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a new thing at the time. Before that, there was really not a lot of paratroopers, especially not in World War One or anything like that. Um, so it was kind of a, a new thing. And I think it was also one of the most dangerous and kind of daring or notorious departments of the army where all the young guys wanted to go serve. And I think that was part of his thing. He really tried to prove himself all the time. So it kind of ties into that, that he's always he was like the short guy that wanted to show that he's bigger than his physical stature. So that was part of it. I mean, there's especially in his early works, you feel a lot of that mid-century macho, I'm a man and I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to do the toughest, the most dangerous thing. And that's what he did. And I think later in his life, he kind of became more sober about it and realized that 
there's a lot more facets to life than just being, you know, this kind of tough guy, macho man. And that experience that he had in World War II had a profound impact on his life. I mean, he had what we now call PTSD. He would have nightmares every night. And from those, he drew upon for his writing. And his experience led him to make statements about things going on in society, social injustice, anti-war statements. He couldn't get those past the advertisers and the network execs as an overt statement. But when he wrapped it within science fiction, it looked harmless to the public. It was just a fantasy show, similar to how Gene Roddenberry did with Star Trek. A lot of social issues were addressed in Star Trek because it was a sci-fi show. It could fly by. When did you first discover Sterling's work? And was it through the very popular Twilight Zone series? I was a latecomer to the show. I'm originally from Israel, so the show was really never very popular there. I don't think they actually ever showed the original show. I saw uh, the reboot in the 80s as a kid. Um, and I thought it was interesting, but it wasn't, you know, I don't think it was that good. So it didn't really la have a lasting effect. And I was aware of it through other pop culture references. Like it was referenced in The Simpsons. It was referenced in uh, The Wonder Years. Many, many shows referred to it. So I always knew what it was. And uh, I only watched the full show, I think, around 2012 or 13 when it became all available on Netflix. And I realized how amazing it is and how it really deserves this iconic place in the history of television. When you did your research for your book, what did you discover about Rod that you didn't know? Well, I didn't know much about him at all. All I knew was from general, just reading the Wikipedia page. So it was very interesting to uh, dive deeper and read the biographies. And um, I found out that he was a very kind of conflicted person that on one hand was, you know, so talented and so driven and created these, um, like a ton of work. And it was just very prolific and very productive. And on the other hand, was just never really sure of himself and never really felt like his work was good enough or he was good enough. It was just really interesting to read about his inner demons and his uh, struggles with himself. And, you know, that, of course, leads to smoking too much and drinking and, and whatever, those kind of things that, that kind of ended up killing him really young but the inner conflict was really fascinating and and also all just his army stories and his shooting up to fame and then kind of being uh, ejected from hollywood so fast was also really fascinating storyline what i found interesting was a lot of his stories that were rejected once he had some success people were willing to accept them networks they wanted those stories now all of a sudden what was bad or not sufficient or good enough was in demand. He was producing, he was super productive and produced so much uh, work. And then at some point, once he basically uh, became super famous after making Patterns, which was a television, um, sort of like a TV movie of the time, they emptied his reject drawer and everything he's written, good or bad, was just taken and produced. And then uh, he had to start making new stuff. When he started having some success, Television was changing at that time. The anthology series were going away. The commercials were part of the show in that they had some say over the content. The way he explained to Mike Wallace, 
when he interviewed him, how he wasn't selling out in a way. The people that made the commercials knew their job. He knew his job. He didn't tell them theirs, and he didn't want them to tell him his. So he still wanted to maintain a very strong sense of control over his work. This is why he's so influential. I think he would have been really happy to see where television is now, which is basically where he aspired it to be. Sometimes there are shows on HBO that do not have commercials, and you could say they're works of art. And he was working during the first golden age of television, and you could say that shows like The Sopranos kind of ushered in the new golden age of television, where people are are watching these long, you know, very well-written, very uh, well-conceived works of popular culture that are uninterrupted and are not that controlled, not that much censorship now. I know it's still probably really difficult to do something without intervention or whatever the executives kind of tell you, you can do this or you can't do that. But he really was very smart to negotiate 100% creative control over The Twilight Zone. And I think that's also why it was such a good show. Um, everybody that worked on it described it being really great and really fun to work on. Uh, and, and that's because Rod was in charge and he wanted it to be, I think, a creative place and a place that's fun to work in and and you could make these great short movies for television and he was ahead of his time because it was okay in the ratings but it didn't do gangbusters until after it ended and then going into syndication it became a cult classic yeah it really was not a big hit while it first aired and then later you know it kind of percolated through culture and he was very upset he had sold all the rights for the show for a lump sum to um, I think it was CBS and then soon after he saw it was on TV constantly and he, he kind of saw the beginning of it turning into a cult show. You mentioned you saw the 80s reboot and weren't too impressed with that and I did see the movie back in 83 a long time ago and it was okay there were some good parts of it what is it about the 80s versions, the reboots, that didn't really interest you as much as the classic ones? Well, I don't really remember. I mean, I saw it as a kid, so I don't remember. I remember one episode where I think someone's able to stop time, and then they keep being able to stop and start time, and they kind of take advantage of it. And then they end up seeing the atomic bomb almost about to land and they realize they're stuck in that specific moment of time forever. And that was the one episode I remembered from the reboot, which was kind of very similar to um, Time Enough at Last, uh, which was from the original show. The original show is just a lot more timeless. The good episodes are really well written, really beautifully shot, beautifully acted. They have the quality of sometimes short art film, a short Ingmar Bergman movie, but it's about aliens. So that's one of the reasons. And and the other is just it's dealing with these universal truths like death or racism or bigotry, things that are still very much relevant. People are still bringing it up. I just saw all these memes about the coronavirus, having everything closed and not being able to go anywhere, being very much of a Twilight Zone thing. These are universal truths that 
keep happening and keep being relevant. The book is The Twilight Man, Rod Serling and the Birth of Television. It's still available. In fact, the latest previews catalog as we speak now, which was out in June, does offer it again along with a new title you have coming out in October, another graphic novel also being published by IDW, Bionic, this October. It is certified cool in the previews catalog. Just a short description of it. It's a near-future coming-of-age story for the digital generation. Victor is a geek and wants to win the love of the gorgeous Patricia, but she returns from a horrible accident with new robotic parts, and both their lives are changed forever. So, the digital generation, how do you define that? Uh, <laughs> I didn't write that blurb, okay. but, uh, uh, what do you think it, of it? It is, it's a, yeah, it's very fitting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good one. Um, no, it's, it's very much about technology and teenagers in the digital age, but I also think that it, it has to do with certain things that are always relevant. And I think people can really identify with it. Things like wanting to be with this one girl in high school and, and never being able to get her because she's not in your league or she's with a different clique and you're the nerd. And that's essentially like the underlying truth to it. You know, it also deals with how does it feel like to have technology almost stuck to yourself all the time and how does that affect you? But yeah, I hope people will like it. It came out in France. I think it's been finished for about two years. So it took quite a bit of time for it to kind of go down the pipeline till it was ready to be published. In France first. That's interesting. Instead of here in the U.S. Why France? Uh, my books do really well in France. And I have a publisher who's always very eager to publish whatever I have. And the moment it was finished, she wanted it. And she published it real fast after it was finished, I think like a month or something like that. So things just move slower here. You know, publishers have a timeline and it's full of things and you're slotted for a certain time. And there's also a funny um, trivia is that the French version actually has a different ending than the American one. So you have the director's cut. <laughs> but basically, um, the editor, Chris Starris um, of Top Shelf, just thought that the book needed a little bit of a different ending. It's not like radically different, but we made some tweaks to the ending. So uh, if you read French, you can get both copies and kind of compare and contrast. From the way it's described, it sounds like you're planning to address issues facing the digital generation throughout the story, much like Rod Serling did in The Twilight Zone, addressing issues, social issues. Yeah, I wouldn't be as presumptuous to <laughs> say I'm uh, anything close to our ages, uh, Rod Serling. Mm -hmm. I don't think that exists. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, social issues are important to me. And I think, you know, this book is not so much about social issues, but it does deal with technology's effect on people. And even Love Addict, my previous book with Top Shelf, which was basically about online dating, also dealt with how technology affects people because it was talking about how dating on these, you know, dating apps and dating websites really kind of messes with your head and changes the way you look at you know, relationships and courtship and all that kind of stuff that goes back thousands of years. And now it's being put into hyperdrive by technology. And what does that do to the human brain? So, yeah, I think it's an interesting department that you could endlessly explore. 
what I read in the write-up in the catalog, so I don't know if these are your words or not. It says Bionic will touch on the fear that wanting something may not be enough. Very interesting. What does that phrase mean? Again, not my words, uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's fitting to the book. And I think if you're curious, just get a copy um, or get a digital copy once it comes out and then you can find out for yourself. It's being solicited pretty far in advance because it's coming out in October and I saw the solicitation in June. Why so far out? Is that just trying to find a slot fit into IDW's schedule? I think the corona really messed everything up for everybody. So I don't know how they're doing things now, but I'm just thankful it didn't come out in March or something like that because I hear that stuff that's come out at that point is just dead on arrival. So I'm not really sure. Yeah, things have been a mess. I've been trying to keep track of what's coming out as things keep changing and as distribution keeps changing too, because we know that you know with Diamond now things have changed with DC. Uh, as of this conversation, who knows, it might be different again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, things are moving fast and no one knows where it's going to go. What is IDW doing right now as a publisher that is right? And most importantly, what are they doing right for you as the writer and the artist? The Twilight Man did not come out with IDW. It came out with Humanoids. We just wanted to clarify. And IDW, they are actually the mother company for Top Shelf. So my books are with Top Shelf. And Top Shelf is more of their alternative division. And they do more books that are um, slightly less mainstream, uh, more in the alternative comics department, whatever that means. They're doing a great job. They had March uh, a few years ago, which was an enormous hit. And then now they had a recent book with Takei that was also um, a big hit. And I think those pairings of you know these very famous personalities with the comic book creators is creating a lot of traction for them. And it helps expose the readers to other maybe lesser known books like my work. So a lot of times people would at Comic-Con or whatever, they would come by to see the Takei book or March, and then they'd end up with a copy of my book too. So I think that really helps. One thing I, I think also is very interesting is that how you've had that success in Europe. You know, I guess just over there, they're more open to graphic novels as comics and something that's not mainstream superhero. I guess there's more of a market for that over there. Yeah, it's a completely different animal in Europe. Uh, I really love the French comic book market. They have very, very interesting stuff they put a lot of care into the artwork and the, the production of the books the books usually look really beautiful and their mainstream is a lot more diverse if here you have mainstream comics being superheroes there you can't really say that there's one thing that's mainstream comics and you know mainstream book could be a book about three retired old men that go and rob banks you know i think that was like a big hit for them so uh, it's a lot more like you'd say Hollywood here where it's not, or you wouldn't say, cause I guess Hollywood's all about superheroes too now. <laughs> right. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a very different beast. And I think that um, my drawing style is a little European. So I think that also makes it more digestible for their readers. Well, now with Bionic coming out in October, and this is already done. So you've had this done for a couple of years now, other than uh, a new ending, a couple of adjustments there. Besides teaching, what else are you working on at the moment? I am working on a new book for humanoids. It is another biography. I'm not telling yet who it is, but it's another 
a personality, a well-known personality. And so that's really taking up a lot of my time. And I'm still doing magazine work uh, that kind of comes and goes. And uh, those are the two things. I'm also developing another personal book that's science fiction, but that's moving a little slower. So that might happen sometime in the future, but I really don't know when. Probably the next thing that will come out would be this nonfiction graphic novel. And that would be released here in the U.S. or Europe first? In the U.S., yeah, with humanoids. Well, if you have some time, I'll ask you the fun questions I ask all my guests, kicking back with the creator to learn more about you as a person. Sure. What do you like to do for recreation? During the COVID pandemic times, I am doing the very, very cliche thing of baking bread. <laughs> so I've been baking a lot of uh, sourdough bread and that's super challenging. And I think that's why I'm enjoying it because it really is like uh very difficult to make a good sourdough loaf. I've made a few good ones, but I'm still aiming for my peak of uh, the mountain, which is the perfect sourdough loaf. Do you think that's something you'll keep doing once the restrictions have completely loosened? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, th I think so. I love sourdough. It's really expensive here in New York. It's like $8 for a sourdough loaf. So I think I will keep doing it probably. It's all about just trying to get it right. And I think once I have it down to a science. Hopefully, I'll just write down all my notes and be able to uh, keep going. That can be a backup in your books, your recipe for sourdough bread. <laughs> yeah. Corin, what was your favorite birthday? Favorite birthday? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't really like birthdays. I'm not a big birthday guy. I usually kind of do the opposite of some people I know. They like get a restaurant and bring all their friends, all that stuff. And I usually kind of just burrow in my <laughs> studio and um, come out when it's all over. So I usually just do low-key stuff with my family and not big on birthdays. Yeah, I pretty much... Uh disappear. <laughs> I hide. That's one way of dealing with it. Well, when you were growing up, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? I had, this is funny, uh, when I was uh, 15, I painted a giant mural of the Alex Ross drawing of the Justice League descending uh, that was in Kingdom Come. So I painted that on my bedroom wall. It took like a week or something like that. Most recently, like the new book I'm working on, the editor is Mark Wade, so it's kind of funny that it's gotten to that where it's kind of come full circle. Who's the guy who wrote this book that I loved as a teenager? I actually got to talk to him, so that was pretty fun. Is this the book, the biography you're working on? Yeah, he's the editor at Humanoids, yeah. Oh, okay. Speaking of books, hypothetical situation. If you're stuck on a deserted island, the one book you want to have to read for pleasure, not for survival, just to pass the time. It can be a set. It can be a collection of books that if they're all related... What would you want to have with you? Oh, um, I really like Henry Miller. I mean, I haven't read that in a long time, but Tropic of Cancer is a really fun, kind of dark, funny book that is not too heavy. And I think maybe if I had to pick one book, that would be that. Or vice versa, some philosophy book like Nietzsche or something like that, which is so dense that you can reread and reread it and reread it and try to interpret it, obsess over it. So that's probably something else that would be good for uh, a deserted island. Though right now, I don't think anytime in the future I'll be reading any philosophy because I have a two-year-old, so I just can't. Oh. 
my focus levels are really low. So, how uh, is the two-year-old making out during the coronavirus? He's having a blast. He is having the most fun of anyone I know. He gets to play with us all the time, and we have a backyard, and we're playing with insects and doing all sorts of fun stuff. So, no, he's having a great time. Another hypothetical: if someone were to make an action figure of you. Oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) What would be your accessory? Probably my phone. I'm on my phone all the time, which is not that original. But, you know, I'll probably be a very hunched over uh, action figure with the phone really close to its face. I saw that little piece of art you did on your site of you hunched over your phone, (laughs) withering away. Yep. (laughs) Yes, that is me. That's my life. (laughs) Well, back to reality. What is your beverage of choice? Right now, again, with the cliche, uh, I don't know what's the word, middle-class American beverage of choice is LaCroix. So that's what I've been drinking, you know, nothing super interesting. That or iced coffee. Thinking of all the projects you've worked on the assignments, what was the one that got away, a project that you really wanted to do, it just didn't pan out? I have a good story that I sometimes tell my students. I was at my third year at the School of Visual Arts, and I was already taking my work around and showing it to magazines. And back in the day, you could just go up to the magazine and leave your portfolio there, and they'd look at it, and you pick it up the next day. And so I did that with Rolling Stone. And then one day I got home, and I think it was seven, and my roommate is like, you have a message on your answering machine. It was that long ago. I think it was like 2004 or five. Uh, from Rolling Stone magazine. I'm like, what? And I did have a cell phone, but I wasn't checking the messages. And then, you know, I tried to call them back. They're, of course, closed. First thing in the morning, I called them again. And they're like, well, we wanted you to do this illustration of, um, I think it was Slipknot, which again, it's not my favorite band, but it would have been amazing to make an illustration for Rolling Stone. And they're like, we're sorry, we already gave it to someone else. That's how it is with magazines. You have to get back to them the same day. So I think that was a big bummer. And I always tell my students, always check your messages, always check your email. Like, you know, never know when they're going to contact you and you've got to get back to them fast. I can see why Slipknot may not be your favorite band. That's a very heavy, heavy metal band. What do you like to listen to? I like 60s music. We were watching yesterday uh, The Cable Guy, and I remembered that uh, Jefferson Airplane. is. I just love Jefferson Airplane, the surrealistic pillow. But again, I wouldn't say they're my favorite band. It's just I like that 60s stuff, and I like bands like the Sonics and uh, the more cheesy mainstream stuff like The Doors. That timeless stuff. Yeah, I do love that. Final question. What was a book that you read that changed the way you think? And if not a book, maybe a movie that you saw that changed your perspective. I think that when I was late teens, I started seeing all those new wave movies and Francois Truffaut and those kind of movies. My favorite movies is The 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut and circling back to the French stuff. And it just made me just at awe to think that you could make something so naturalistic and so beautiful and so simple. So it was very impressive to me. And just that whole movement of movies from that era was just very influential. And have you seen anything lately that really impressed you in terms of movies? And not that we can go out and see movies, but have you been streaming a lot? We just watched uh, last week The Joker, which I thought was really good. It's not really a superhero movie, which is... I think what makes it good and it was very very relevant because it ends up with this spoiler alert if you haven't seen it just stop now but uh it ends up with these riots in gotham city which is 
you know, basically New York. And it was the same time that there were the marches here that turned kind of violent. There was looting and it felt a little apocalyptic. So in that sense, it really touches on the spirit of the times. I thought it was pretty good. It's funny you should mention that one because um, we took the plunge and got HBO Max. I think that's on there. Yeah, that's where I watched it. Yeah, you should watch it. It's good. I couldn't get to it through my Fire Stick because they don't have a deal with Amazon at this time. So it's only through AT&T. I think it's through like Apple. And I was like, oh, that stinks. I have to sit here and watch it on my phone. And then my son had a good year at school and got good grades and everything. So we got him a PS4. And I'm like, hey, honey, look, HBO Max is on the PS4. Streams like, on the PS4. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm behind the times. But now that I have it, we started watching Watchmen last night, which, again, with everything that's been going on with the protests and everything. Also very relevant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good show. I started watching it on my phone because my wife just wasn't really interested in getting into anything new right now. She was reading a book. And I watched about a few minutes, and I was immediately, like two minutes into it, I said, this is for me. This is something I have to watch now, the whole thing. And she's like, well, why are you watching it without me? I'm like, okay, I'll stop. I'll wait until you're ready. I know that how that feels, yeah. Those are good recommendations. I will have to check out Joke right here. It's pretty dark, pretty heavy. But you say, hey, it's a good film, well-made, well-acted, relevant. Definitely have to check that out now. Well, Corin, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate you spending some time here at Creator Talks talking about your upcoming Bionic through IDW this October and available again through Humanoids, The Twilight Man. Thank you so much and best of luck and thank you for being on Creator Talks. Thanks for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. I do have another writer-artist coming up with a graphic novel certified cool by Diamond Previews. Also, I mentioned on the last show, I have an interview coming up regarding the Constitution graphic novel, a 60s rock band graphic novel. I have a couple of others in the works for October. And this just in, I have another interview coming up at the beginning of the month on September 1st. It's already recorded. So before I bring you the next regularly scheduled interview, which is normally every two weeks, I'm excited to bring you this special interview about a book you cannot get in stores. And my guest is someone I've looked forward to having on the show for a long time. This person has done work for Marvel, DC, Valiant, and they have a special book coming out September 1st only. This is not a Kickstarter. This is not a Patreon. This is not an Indiegogo. This is something completely different and new. So I want to make sure that you have a chance to listen to the podcast before the offer ends. So I will be promoting it in advance before the show comes out September 1st. That way, if you wish, you have a chance to listen to it that day so you can take advantage of the limited time offer. Who is my guest? How can you find out? Well, just follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. I will let you know a few days ahead of time who my guest will be on September 1st. And after that, depending on how school from home goes in September, I'll be bringing you another podcast, maybe on the holiday Labor Day. If I do, just look for the announcement through my Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter account at Creator Talks Pod. September is going to be a very busy month for me with the podcast. Other than the every other Thursday, I have those bonus interviews coming out for you. If you need to reach me directly, you can email me. The address is creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. If you are a new listener, please tell others about the show if they're into comic books and their creators. And please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts 
it goes a long way to helping the show extend its reach and attract more listeners. Well, that's all for now. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Thank you.